This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 396 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Alex Jaber. Now, Alex is not only a fellow paramedic, she is also a grief and death educator and the woman behind emergency resilience. So we discuss a host of topics from her early life in Lebanon, moving to the US, entering EMS, and then her work in grief, death, and mental health both academically and in her work and her own personal life as well. So there is so much depth to this conversation, I highly recommend you listen from beginning to end. 
Before we get to that interview, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single rating that you leave, especially every five-star rating, elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. So by taking a moment to rate the show, you're helping other people get to the show. And this is a free library for you, the audience, individually, organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward so I can get it to everyone else that needs to hear it. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Alex Jaber. Enjoy. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So the, my, my very opening question is always, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today, you are finding me in Southern California, Redlands, to be exact. Beautiful. Yeah. And actually, we have a, a mutual friend that's in that area. I don't. I think we talked before and you don't know him, but if Mike Linen ever listens to this, I want to say a shout out to him. He's a Redlands firefighter. Was uh, Anaheim with me. Um, so I'd like to start at the very beginning. So tell me about where you were born and then your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, okay. This is a good question. Um, I was born in Southern California. I was born in Upland, but I lived in Lebanon. And we're talking overseas during the war, the Middle East. Well, you're not. Yeah. Near the Middle East. And... My um, my parents lived there. My dad's from there. My mom's from Ex- my mom was from Mexico. She's since passed away when I was about eighteen. And uh, they met while my dad was vacationing, um, or he was living in Mexico, and she was vacationing in Mexico because she had immigrated from Mexico to the United States when she was about nine years old. So, long story short, they ended up living in Lebanon, where my dad was from. During the war with my sister, I have an older sister who uh, she's 10 years older than I am and got pregnant with me and they decided uh, my mom was just really worried with how the dynamics were overseas that she wanted to make sure I was, um, you know, an American. And so she made sure my sister was born in America as well. She was born in Newport. And so she made sure I was born over here. And um, that kind of added um, the amount of protection that we received while we were overseas. So being an American, there were just, I I don't remember all the dynamics of it, but I do remember some stories that my sister has told me because she basically grew up there. And then after a couple of years, um, less than two years old, I I moved back with my family and um, my dad was a amazing cook and always, always owned restaurants and was probably one of the most fun people to work for from what I've been told by people who worked for him. He's since retired. And my mother was a teacher. Beautiful. Well, speaking of uh, Lebanese food, let's uh, let's paint the picture because I know there's a lot of you know misunderstanding between you know Greek and Turkish and you know a lot of the the countries that are around that area. So, w- what does Lebanese food look like? It it's still very Mediterranean. So there's certain things that are specific to Lebanese um, cuisine, but it's, uh, I would never call it the same difference because it's not, um, but it's very heavy in garlic, lemon, and salt. Those are the three main ingredients to just about anything that they cook. 
Beautiful. And have you, I mean, obviously you were there as an infant. Have you been back to Lebanon since? Yes, several times, several times. So my dad moved back there eventually. Uh, my parents divorced when I was four. And my dad eventually moved back there. Um, his whole family is there. So um, grandparents passed away in the last few years. They lived to be over 100. And all his siblings are still alive and thriving. So that's good. And we just we just have a very large family there. And the family dynamics are very, very strong. And so it's always a really just a reset to be able to go back and visit and, you know, slow down. They do everything so slow. You know, the Sunday family luncheons will last about five or six hours without even thinking about it. Beautiful. Well, well, as a complete tangent then, from a country that was extremely war-torn before, um, what do you see now coming from your, you know, um, psychology training and, you know, and doctorate that you have, as far as the mental health, just in general, in that country, do you see more cohesion, the kind of community element strong? Um, you know, what are some of the observations that you've made now from the the journey that you've been on? From my perspective, I see a lot of, um, from my viewpoint, I see a lot of perspective in them. So they have, they are a very, very vulnerable small country. I mean, they are, uh, California is 32 times the size of Lebanon to give you some perspective. Wow. And yes, and their only ally, you know, true consistent ally is the Mediterranean. And, you know, they bump up to the water and you've got Syria and um, Israel, the, you know, that area being occupied around them. So war has literally just surrounded them. And so, if you watch a, there's really good episode of um, when Anthony Bourdain went to Beirut. He went there twice, I think, and he just admires the diversity there and how you have um, the Muslims and the Christians and the Catholics just, you know, doing their thing, living their life in Beirut. And not to say that there isn't some discrimination under the surface. I, I don't know that for a fact. Um, but they, they, he just looked at them in awe. And from my viewpoint, they know better. They know what happens when you can't just coexist. And it's not worth it to them. They just want peace. That's it. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's such a simple lesson. I'm about to get a, a friend of mine who I've just become a friend with, um, who's an author, talking about Ireland. And again, you've got Christians, mm -hmm. but some are Catholic and some are Protestant, Protestant, you know, murdering each other. Then you've got the pro-UK and the anti-UK murdering each other, you know, and there's all these things, but they're all Irish, English, Scottish, and Welsh people. The two little <laughs> tiny rocks in the middle of the ocean. It's, it's insanity when you look at it. Yeah, because at the end of the day, everybody's of the human race. And it's just, um, there's a commonality between between everybody. It's, it's really remarkable, too. I used to... Um, so I worked with, it's funny, I'm just thinking about this right now. I worked with a battalion chief in Riverside and uh, he's Israeli and he, everybody jokes around and calls him the angry Israeli because he'd just go around just <laughs> cursing up a storm and just, you know, throwing shit all over the place. But he was, he was very entertaining. I liked working with him, but he and I were very close, a lot of respect for each other. And the irony of it that I just absolutely admired was that he was in the Israeli Air Force at the time that I was living in Lebanon. So if you put 
you know, two and two together, <laughs> he was probably bombing where I lived. <laughs> Yet in this world and up close, we admired and respected each other. But at a distance, we were enemies. Yeah, and you had the same common cause, which was to help other human beings. Correct. It's crazy, isn't it? So like when you meet a racist firefighter and you're like, what a walking contradiction you are. <laughs> you risk your life with complete strangers of different colors and creeds, and then you allow your mouth to spout something that totally contradicts what you actually do with your, work, with your life. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Absolutely. Right. Well, just staying on this history lesson, because I mean, this is, this is awesome. I love the fact that I meet people with these different backgrounds and so many people have fascinating stories. But just the background of the conflict, there's a lot of us that you know, know the name Beirut, for example, know the city and, and have, see the images on the news. What was the history of the conflict and, and ultimately how was it resolved? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I don't know that it was resolved rather than they just got tired of fighting, <laughs> to be honest with you. And it's... Um, There has been war in the Middle East for, for ever, you know. If you um, dug into it, you would see that this is almost like, it's almost cyclic. It's almost like every 20 years something comes back up. And um, what I do know is that this there, there was a recent explosion in Beirut. I don't know if you heard about it. And it was... Um, felt all the way in Cyprus is how powerful the explosion was. And I want to say it damaged buildings uh, within a 20 mile radius. It was a horrendous video. There was firefighters fighting it at the time, weren't there? Yeah. They, they brought in mutual aid from France, which has always been an ally to, to Lebanon. And so that was really incredible and heartwarming to see. And, uh, you know, the, leading up to that, they've, they have, Beirut has been destroyed and rebuilt eight times to date. Eight times. And it's a it's a massive city. It's a beautiful city. It was, you know, in the 80s was considered, not the 80s, but um, before, the, before the war in the 80s was considered the Paris of the Middle East. And they rebuilt it quite remarkably. It's, it's gorgeous there. And to think that it's been destroyed again is just, it, it just shatters you. Yeah, and that, that video, you know, with that, when, you know, the the reports of that, obviously the video footage and everything made the news, I saw an outpouring of, you know, love and support and heartbreak, you know, from the fire service globally, you know, because, you know, we know we lost a lot of firefighters in that explosion too, as, as well as the civilians. But again, it just, it showed me that at that moment, it wasn't about, again, color, creed, religion. It was just about seeing the commonalities in those firefighters then they are no different than anyone else you know and it's it, as tragic as it was it really was was a, a kind of aha moment i think for some people like yeah these it it may be a country that you've seen on the news it may be in a country that you've been attributed as a quote-unquote enemy but at the end of the day within that nation are husbands and wives trying to you know grow their children, you know, put a roof over their head and food in their stomach. And some of these men and women are doctors and nurses and firefighters and police officers and all these things that we have the same in our country too. Yeah. And, you know, until you get out of your own little world and start traveling, you don't know any different. You don't know any better. And that's what traveling is so 
valuable for is, you know, not just a vacation, but, you know, real travel is work. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of getting lost and dealing with, you know, changing itineraries and, you know, um, language barriers and, you know, trying new food and all those things. And so it's very exhausting to put your mind through that because, um, or our brains, our brains are very wired for that pattern. And so to break from our routine and go dive into something new, it's, it's very taxing, but it's also very rewarding at the end of it. And I think that when you make a choice to venture out, you, you really see that there are so many more similarities and there are differences between us. Absolutely. That's a very good point. I never thought of that because I found that sometimes like, you know, the little traveling I've done wasn't relaxing. Like I just went over just to California, which is nothing but for four days. But you know, the time change right now flying with COVID in a, you know, a folding chair stapled to a plane <laughs> where you're all wearing masks and not allowed to serve any foods or drinks and you have to put your hand up to use the toilet. It wasn't the relaxing, you know, thing, but the purpose of the visit was, you know, was important and culturally California and Florida are different even within this own country. So, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. not always a, you know, a relaxing thing. And I think that's maybe why some of these all inclusives and cruises and things are, are kind of an easy way out. But yeah, if you truly want to see a country, it, it's, it may not be, <laughs> you may not feel refreshed when you come back, but my goodness, you're going to learn some lessons. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And there's a place, for, there's a time and place for the all inclusive resorts. Cause I, I love those, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, if, if you feel exhausted when you come back from your backpacking trip, uh, yeah, that's why. Absolutely. All right. Well, then just staying with your your younger years just for a little bit longer. Um, so you had a divorce at four. You, you, you were in a war zone at two. You had a divorce at four. And then tragically, you lost your mother when you were 18. So when you look back, again, being in this world now, do you identify uh, areas of trauma within your own childhood? It's ironic because if you were asked my therapist, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know, and I remember the first time I met my therapist, uh, you know, I rattled everything off to her and her jaw just drops and she's like, uh, you know, that's, that's very remarkable that you're, you're in the position you are today considering all those adversities. So, you know, yes, they were, they were there and they're part of who I am now. And I don't think on one hand, I did not grow up thinking that I was disenfranchised at all. I didn't grow up thinking I was um, underprivileged. I just thought, I just always had this mentality that there's always somebody more underprivileged than I was. You know, and that was kind of, you know, a little bit of philosophy that was gifted for my mom is that no matter how, no matter how poor you are, no matter how um, stuck in a rut or problems you have, there's always someone else that wishes they had your problems. And it, it kind of keeps some good perspective, you know, in a way that, you know, to always think that you're always in a, in a opportunity or you're always in a, an ability to help others. But um, yeah, no, there was, there was a lot. There's um, an interesting, uh, there was a study that was done. I can't, I'm blanking on how long ago it was, but it's called the adverse childhood experiences. And they basically linked, I know Kaiser Permanente was part of it, um, but they did a survey with, um, there's like 10 experiences um, that could result um, during childhood and they include 
um, being abused, um, divorces, deaths between parents, um, a parent being incarcerated, like it, it lists all these things. And the higher the score, they were able to correlate the higher the risk of not only uh, mental struggles with like depression, anxiety, um, but also coronary heart disease, blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, respiratory. And the correlation was so, um, was so abundant. This wasn't a correlation equals causation thing. They were able to prove that the rougher child, the rougher the childhood you had, the higher likely you were to struggle with your health as an adult. Yeah, and I hear and I looked at this thing. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, carry on. I thought you. I thought you were done with your your thought oh, process. No, so please I, carry on. It's okay. Um, you know, I had done this this test, and I, I think I scored like an eight on a ten. So I think that was kind of the realization. I learned this this program when I was. Um, I learned about the study when I was studying in my master's, and I, that was a little more eye opening to look at it a little more objectively instead of subjectively to say, Oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, everything's, everything's fine. But, um, you know, looking back, I would say it's definitely part of what's led me to the work that I do now. So I'm, I'm definitely in a, in a very ironic way. I'm very grateful for the childhood I had regardless. Well, it's funny because the ACES score was actually developed in the mid nineties. I just looked it up. We were talking because it's come up over and over again. Um, but I hadn't, again, really heard of it until recently. For some reason, a lot of the interviews the last six months, people have really started looking towards that. So this mm. is, you know, it's been around for 25 years, but it just seems like a lot of these psychologists, psychiatrists groups in our tactical space seem to now just finally be understanding, getting away from that, that kind of facade that it's about what we see in PTSD and going back to that childhood trauma and understanding that you know how much do we bring into the job before we even put a badge on our chest absolutely absolutely and i think that you know i, I have my suspicions it's just merely my opinion that we're coming into this field fully loaded you know we're coming into this field because of some sort of chaos that we experience as children um and and we kind of just feel at home in the mess and you know i read i heard someone say this and i i will i will state the disclosure that I, I never was able to find the actual study on this. So, um, but I remember um, a professional speaking at a conference and they stated that most, it was something like a statistic of over 90% of first responders grew up in alcoholic homes. And while I was never able to find the statistic that this came from, the study that came from, I do recall very specifically looking around the room because this was a general conference. So there were hundreds of people in this room and so many people shifted in their seats uncomfortably as, as, as this person stood there for a moment while they really absorbed what they had just said. And that told me, at least from my perspective, that, ooh, there is some truth to this. Well, I can tell you from interviewing almost 400 people now, um, many of which are either in the military or first responder professions or, you know, doctors and nurses, that absolutely anecdotally that is true because I was 
absolutely blown away when people started opening up about their early life to the point now where I make, you know, I deliberately try and explore that because it's, it's, there's so much gold in there. And I mean that, you know, in a positive way, like there's so many moments that then explain things that happen later in their life. But yeah, physical abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, sexual abuse. So many of the responders that have been on this show, at least, have had that in the childhood and it's incredible. And, 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 you know, conversely, I had some, um, you know, I like had a house fire when I was four, it almost killed me. So I had some like incidences, a wall almost fell on us and, and killed us. We were a few years later, the gob was really trying to get rid of the gearing population, but, um, it, it, they weren't, they, it wasn't trauma at home. Like apart from my parents' divorce at home, I was one of the very lucky few. So that's why the position I'm at now is if you're doing well, you then you owe it to everyone else to be an advocate. Because when people say, you know, no one knows the battle that you're fighting, it's, I mean, God, did, I, I had no idea how horrendous some of those histories were until you heard them. So that quote unquote angry medic might be angry because of A, you know, the job, sleep deprivation, but also because they were molested as a child and it was never dealt with. Yeah. And I remember um, that that's spot on. I remember. What was it I learned? Um, I was at a, I was in a workshop with a psychologist, and they said, "Who's the most abused child on the playground?" It's the bully, and that's so eye opening because you're like, "Oh, the guy that's being a dick is actually dealing with trauma." You know, like it, it's you know you you've got to, uh, but you know the balance then lies for ourselves to go. At what point? is there a boundary with our compassion? You know, there has to be personal boundaries. You can't just let people, you know, crap all over you and project all their anger and their, their stuff on you. Right. But I, I find myself, the more I learn, you know, the more I learn about psychology, the more tolerant I am. It, it, the harder it is for me to get angry at somebody, basically, like I'll still hold my boundaries. But that becomes a challenge. And, you know, one thing I've been, because I'm, I'm actually in my third year of my PhD program, I'm starting my dissertation. And there's, there's an inkling of fear that if, I, that if I dive too deeply into the historical trauma of first responders, that it would then create almost a, a greater stigma than there already is with mental health and first responders, meaning that it would be misinterpreted as a way to field out um, the individuals that might be a higher risk for PTSD in the future. And the, the, the other side of that is it is, I, I, and this is again, my perspective, my opinion is I think it is that trauma that we experience as children that makes us such good first responders. So there is no fielding them out. We are drawn to this profession for a reason. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And when you were talking about that, it kind of, I don't know why this analogy popped in my head, probably because I'm a fireman through and through, but um, uh, a dumpster fire. So usually when we go on a dumpster fire, it's some bloody, you know, pallet or something that's all the way at the bottom. And, you know, you throw all this water in, but all the stuff that's on top of it stops the water from getting to the seat of the fire. So you end up basically emptying this dumpster 
um, to get to the seat of the fire. And I think that's it, is if we're not addressing, if we don't take the bold step of addressing the true, you know, one of the catalysts for what we see. There's some people that didn't have trauma that still struggle later, but um, if we don't unpack that, we're never going to get to the root of the problem. And, and you know, like you said, it was very interesting when you said the more you understand, the more compassionate you are. That's what I found with addiction, with homelessness, with all those things. When you reverse engineer, say, for example, the prohibition of drugs, which is something I talk about all the time, because to me, it's again, it's one of those roots that we have to address. Then you kind of fast forward with with childhood trauma. Then, you know, they, they seek whatever it was, you know, whether it's an opiate or, you know, meth or whatever. Now they have to hide in the shadows. Now, you know, they turn to prostitution, which is also illegal, you know, and, and it just compounds it to the point where some of these men and women are now, you know, as people love to call them, bums, whores, you know, um, crackheads, you know, and they're not. They're human beings that have been on this path. But we can't help any of those while we still demonize mental ill health, which is basically what drug prohibition is. So um, I agree completely. I think that someone who has trauma and then deals with it will end up being an incredibly strong and resilient first responder. And one of the kind of theories that I've had, one of the, the the things I'd love to see is from someone that's worked through four fire departments and then volunteered for a fifth, very briefly, but five like hiring processes, if you like. Um, I've done, you know, lied my way through three polygraphs. I've done four psych tests. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, and uh, it's bullshit. It's absolute waste of fucking time, waste of money. So my thing is, why not take that exact same budget that you paid that dipshit with all the certificates on there, on their wall, it tells you they're the world's greatest polygrapher, you know, and it's just a magic act. And then that l- lunatic they send you to that does a psych test whose freaking office <laughs> looks like the office of a mad person. These are both very true things I'm talking about. And just take that money and, and you do your background checks, find the people you want. And while you're doing through going through EMS training and, and PT and all that stuff, add in three, four counseling sessions. So that you give this person a chance to start offloading trauma, build a relationship with a counselor, and they can carry that through their career. Instead of, you know, these crazy tests where you're checking boxes saying, oh, you know, we didn't know, we tested them, we didn't know they were going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, how about you actually do something that will facilitate them being mentally sound when they enter the profession? Yeah, to normalize it, make it routine. I mean, they have to go get a, you know, we all have to get a physical at some sort of some sort. I know some fire departments incentivize their firefighters to go get a yearly physical and some of them will decline it. But at the very least, the the incentive is there. And, you know, going back to um, the ACE score, what I don't know about the study, I haven't dug into what they've done with the results since then, but what I'm wondering from a depth psychological perspective is have they realized that you know, they found the correlation between the adverse childhood experiences, that's what A stands for, adverse childhood experiences, and the comorbid factors that people are dealing with as adults. But have they realized that if you just work to process the old trauma, that it might reduce those those uh, you know health issues as adults? I don't know. I don't know. But to me, I think yes. I think it would. And, you know, it's, um, it, it just, it's one of those things that if it lurks in the shadows and it stays 
repressed. Um, it, it's going to rear its head in its own way. And I think that's what we see the result of. Absolutely. There's a Mexican proverb, actually, that I used in, in the book that I wrote. Um, I quoted it on one of the blogs that became the book. Um, but it's, uh, uh, God, I'm blanking on it now. They tried to bury us. They didn't know that we were seeds. And I thought it was so powerful. It was exactly it. You know, the more you push it down, you, you ignore it, but eventually it's going to grow whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, then let's walk through your kind of journey through um, fire and EMS so that we can kind of come up to speed to, to where you are now. So tell me about your entrance into that profession. Um, I kind of fell into it uh, by, by chance. Uh, I was a senior in high school. My mom was still alive and she was big on education. She worked very hard to finally get her bachelor's degree and teacher credentials. And so she couldn't quite understand why I didn't want to go to college. So that's the irony is I did not want to go to college. And here I am with my PhD uh, in progress. But uh, I had a, a classmate who was a explorer for an ambulance company in town. And he's all, you should become an EMT. And I kid you not, my first response to him was women do that? <laughs> and looking back, I'm like, God, you know, I think in hindsight, I mean, I grew up watching Rescue 911 and loving seeing, you know, the ambulances and firefighters go by, but I never once saw a female do it. So I just, it wasn't on my radar that it was something I could do. And I think that's where diversity in the eye of a child is so important because when you see yourself, in those positions by by looking up and seeing someone else do it you 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 see your pathway that you didn't want to see before so that was that was my response at 18 years old and i thought oh and he's all yeah you don't have to it's a it's a technical program you get your license and you get to work and i thought perfect and so i went home told my mom about it and she's like great you're doing it and it was the first time i think we had agreed on me doing anything because we we didn't get along very well in high school um, and so I, I, I had a, I had already signed up for school. I think it was a six week program that was supposed to start in September and she died end of August. So right, like probably three weeks before I started school, she had died. And, um, I ended up, I was an EMT for about, I want to say eight years, seven years before I became a medic. And worked mostly, you know, private ambulance, did some PCF stuff with the county, enjoyed that. I I dabbled in the idea of being a firefighter, but um, never really, it it just never really quite appealed to me enough to pursue it. And decided to become a medic, really enjoyed that. And then about three years ago, I had a severe back injury that totally laid me out. And it was very traumatic in the sense that, um, I mean, I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit. Um, I couldn't do anything without the help of other people. And all of a sudden, I had this, like, I don't want to say identity crisis, but maybe that's what it was. But all of a sudden, I'm like, 
I'm not a medic. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do with myself? <laughs> you know, I'd always, I mean, from the age of 18, I'm 35 now. Um, so this was, I think on my 32nd birthday is the day it happened. Um, you know, I, w- I was definitely questioning everything. And so that, that sent me into a pretty decent depression. Um, and what's, what's interesting, what came of that was, um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself with some other things that we're going to talk about, but I suddenly had nightmares that I hadn't experienced since I was about five years old. And suddenly my childhood nightmares were all coming back to visit me following that injury. And so I found that to be extremely telling of some unresolved shit I needed to work out. Absolutely. Now with, um, with injuries, this is something that I've seen as well. And again, you know, talk about commonalities, you know, one big thing is, you know, you, whether you're a medic working with a partner or whether you're with a crew in a fire station, you know, it's taking you away from your tribe and it's taking away. I mean, one of my friends now is, is battling exactly this, uh, a back injury, um, for the second time, had surgery the first time. Um, I had one. Um, again, I wrote that story in the book, but I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, do it through PT and the thing called foundation training, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and get back to it. But I had the same thing. I went from, you know, firefighter on a busy rig in, you know, a, a fire medic, you know, so really be able to, to walk the walk when it came to rescue and that kind of thing. So my man card was just brimming <laughs> and then I'm lying on a bed and I can't even put my shoes on. And, you know, I'm not around my crew. I wake up in my same bedroom every morning and, you know, the kids go to school and my wife goes to work and I'm just sitting there on my own. And yeah, it was, it was extremely hard. So how did you manage to come out of that mentally? And then what about physically? What, what kind of tools did you use to get back on your feet? Well, luckily, um, I was able to, it was work-related. And, um, because I didn't really understand the injury, like it was my leg that hurt so bad. It was, it was all down my left side. And so I went to the doctor, I was like, I can't walk. Something's wrong with my leg. <laughs> he does an MRI. He goes, it's your back. <laughs> it's like, Oh, and he's like, yeah, this is definitely work related. He could see, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, herniated discs, but, yes, uh, my, very. my, okay. <laughs> so, uh, mine was my S1. So L. L4, L5, S1 is like the MS special. Um, and so L4, L, uh, L4, L5 was bulging. Um, but my S1 had herniated 23 uh, millimeters, which was an outstanding number. I remember my surgeon saying this is the largest herniation I've ever removed in my career. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, he had said anything over seven or nine requires like a consult, but doesn't necessarily require surgery. And, um, so luckily, thank God I was able to get, um, my, my ambulance company, believe it or not, took care of me. I, and I networked a lot with, um, I should say connected with three other firefighters that were all experiencing the same injuries. And truly they were the only ones that understood what I was experiencing. Nobody else could, you know, I, I was expected to do things. And like, oh, why can't you come? Or, you know, why aren't you coming on this trip? It's like, I can't walk. Like, I don't think people really got that. And maybe because, you know, I, I saved face and, you know, most people didn't see 
what it truly was like, but it, it was it was difficult. And luckily, I had also had a teaching job by then. I, I still teach at a community college in the paramedic program, EMT program. And so even though I couldn't work on the ambulance, I was still able to work teaching. Um, it was exhausting and I had a lot of help. I mean, students and staff members, would they wouldn't let me pick up a thing. I'd drop things all the time and they'd pick it up for me. So that was helpful. Um, that was a very saving grace for me. Um, but I got the surgery and, uh, I was immediately, immediately had relief. It was the, I had something called a microdiscectomy and, you know, in terms of back surgeries for anyone who's listening that doesn't know, isn't familiar with them, but a microdiscectomy is like, for me, it was like getting a wisdom tooth pulled. It was like the, the, the most minor of back surgeries that you could get. And in hindsight, I resisted it for so long. I was like, I'm not going to be in the same after back surgery. You're not the same after back surgery. You're not the same after your injury. Okay. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing because I would say I'm probably stronger and more flexible and safer now than I was before the back injury. So I wish I would have just gotten it instead of, you know, humming and hawing it for about eight weeks in pain. And it wasn't, I had a great surgeon. He was a total asshole. I mean, you, his bedside manner was awful, but he was so smart and he was such a strong advocate and he did not, I mean, he took care of me first and foremost and he called me on my bullshit and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I was so fortunate to find him. But as far as, you know, coping went, man, that was hard. I, I was drinking a lot during that time. Um, and a lot alone, you know, I, I, yeah, I enjoy glass of wine with my dinner. I enjoy going out and having a good time with my friends on occasion, but that was a lot of, um, sitting at home alone, just drinking because nothing else could distract me from the pain. And I firmly believe that had I not already been in therapy working with my clinician, it would have been a much harder reality to deal with, uh, working with somebody leading up to that was my saving grace. Now you mentioned that. So what what initially took you to a clinician? Uh, curiosity, to be completely honest with you. I had moved to a new city and there was a practice a couple of doors down from where I live. So I live in a small city. It's got a lot of um, historical homes. And so you can have like a residence next to a dentist's office, next to a therapist. And they're all in these like historical homes. And it always caught my eye because I had something called the meditation room. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I want to go in there. And so for about two years, I looked at it. And finally, one day I walked in and I saw that they had therapy and I had the insurance to do it. And the rest is history, <laughs> honestly. Brilliant. No, that's, that's sort of, and, you know, amazing to hear. And that's exactly what I was talking about with the, the fire example, too. Like you have a go to already so you can lean into them when life throws a curveball at you. Exactly. And, and truthfully, I had become such an advocate for mental health in first responders by then, by the time I walked into their office, that I thought to myself, well, I'm a whole lot of talk if I'm not willing to actually see a therapist myself. And so it was, it was in hindsight, it was completely meant to be. But at the time, I thought, eh, let's just see what happens. <laughs> well, that's a brilliant story, though. Um, well, you know, I want to get to, you know, obviously the other side of your work as well, which is, you know, how we as professionals deal with death, you know, from a patient basically. And, you know, obviously coworkers too. But um, 
you had mentioned in one of the other interviews I heard um, that you'd lost a you know a paramedic friend to suicide. So you know when did that happen in your career, and then and then how did you deal with that personally? Um, I want to say so for a couple of years when I was going through. I was towards the end of my, my time as an EMT and when I was going through medical school, I actually worked with OCFA. Um, I was working for a private ambulance and we were in house in, um, at station 64 in Westminster. And so I was there for two years, hands down the best job I've ever had. I mean, I would, I mean, to have that crew back and those dynamics back and those partners back for $8 an hour, I would absolutely do it in a heartbeat. And everybody who worked there at that time, like the friends I've kept in touch with, um, have all said the same thing. And then, you know, those, those men were just incredible, um, influences on all our careers and they, they took care of us. We're like family and we kept in touch, you know, like there's events that the, that they put together, um, hockey events, charity events and whatnot. And, you know, you'll still, I'll still go to them and see some old faces and keep in touch and love that, love that dynamic. Um, but one of the paramedics I worked with, so I, I would work, um, I was on one shift, but I worked all three of them pretty equally during medic school because I had to trade all my weekdays for weekends. And one of the paramedics on that shift, um, uh, ended up dying in, I think it was December of 2016. Uh, it was a captain, Eric Weave, and he died off the five freeway. And that was very just jarring. I mean, it was like, wait, what? I think, you know, I knew that there was this problem in this field. There was this, this thing we don't talk about, this thing that's, you know, almost a silent killer. But that was such a slap in the face because the Eric, I remember now he had been dealing with some stuff leading up to this. And so for some people, they, they knew he was in a bad place. Um, he had had an injury and, um, some other stuff going on with him in his personal life. But the Eric I remember was, you know, he was, he was the man other men wanted to be. He was the man that women find attractive. He had this beautiful family. He was smart. He was funny. I mean, he on the surface, you know, seemed to have it all. Like, why would he do this? You know? So that was very telling um, of just how, how bad this problem really was. Oh, absolutely. And I remember when, when Eric passed, I really do, you know, because obviously I'm, I'm embedded in California too with my Anaheim roots and he was a friend of a lot of those guys. And, you know, we around that same time, I think it was a little bit, was it around that? It might be in the same year, but we lost um, Chief Matt, Matt uh, Negley here. And he was again, the, the firefighters, firefighter. The, you know, there was all the uh, FDIC and he was known internationally you know as, as a part of that team and you know completely sideswiped everyone and again what was interesting is i heard you know different discussions about that and it was like oh yeah yeah but he was going through a divorce and you hear that oh yeah but they had this that's that's a contributing factor that doesn't mean that it disregards all the other shit just because of that one element and that's a you know a disservice again to these men and women that we lose and i hear that comment all the time and I see it. Let me forget to hear that comment. I see it in my own friends. The happy-go-lucky, physically fit, mentally fit firefighter or medic that stood on that diamond or police officer, 10 years later, they're not the same person. 
you know they're they're physically broken they're mentally you know just so worn down and you know, they they tell me like i i can't help myself but shout at my wife and my kids when i get home they're in tears you know they're just they've lost who they are and that's something that i talk about a lot with with the shifts that, that we work especially in california it's all pretty much all 56 no kelly and work weeks in very very busy departments like right now a lot of our departments around the country have set our men and women up for failure because these shifts the sleep deprivation is just literally destroying the very people that right now especially with covid we're expecting to come through like fucking superheroes and it's like <laughs> yeah but that but these are the people that you've been destroying the 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 resident doctors you've been working 67 hour, excuse me 60 or 70 hour weeks they're broken you've you've crushed them so that's what you know one of the things that i see you take childhood trauma and then you take all the things that that we see and do and you take that inability to save and then you sleep deprive them it, it's a it's a absolute recipe for disaster in my opinion yeah because you know, you know sleeping is really it, it is so important and you know we, we really pride ourselves on being able to do more with less and less being less sleep but following um following just a really complex day um maybe not even trauma but maybe just you just had a you got rocked, you know, and you had some really shitty calls and maybe there was one call that got to you. The most important thing for your mind to be able to reset is sleep. Because when we sleep, we go into REM. REM is literally taking all the information that we, uh, you know, consumed that day and it's processing it and it's filing it away. And I suspect, again, I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that it's that lack of sleep because what happens after a traumatic event, we can't sleep and we drink instead. I can't tell you every time I get a message from somebody who had a rough call and wants to talk, it's a message I wake up to because they text me or um, message me on social media at four in the morning. Yeah. They're not sleeping. And so you have no way to process what just happened and it just sets you up for, um, a lot longer of a of a recovery from that event when you you're off to the wrong foot. So it's kind of a it's like a catch twenty two is because these these traumatic events leave you unable to sleep, but sleep helps you process them. <laughs> so you know you yeah I just think uh, I don't know it's 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 a very tough position to be in. Absolutely. Well, also if you do go to sleep, if you've been drinking, you know, say you had three or four beers, wine, whatever, before you go to sleep, you're, you're not going to get into good REM sleep from that. I mean, that's just, that's known, you know, medical science. And then if you take something like Ambien, you will be unconscious. Yeah. Will you get into REM sleep? No. Also no. So everything that we use to force ourselves into sleep doesn't work. I actually take a, a sleep formula that's all, you know, just a supplement. It's all, it's all, you know, natural things that works incredibly well. Uh, Doc Parsley was a Navy SEAL that kind of found himself in sleep medicine after seeing his seals falling apart. Um, but, uh, that works incredibly well. But yeah, I mean, all the, the, uh, the, the narcotics, the, the alcohol, um, you know, all that stuff. It's, it just, you never get there. So you're never able to process it. So I see it, you know, the, the REM sleep, like the, the old gold rush, you know, with their sieves going through the, the streams and sifting out all the shit to find the gold nugget. Well, that to me is what REM sleep does with your memories and it processes them and just leaves you with, you know, with the, the, the long-term memories of what happened. But, you know, if you're not sifting it, eventually you're going to end up with this mountain of dirt that you haven't processed. 
mm-hmm. yeah, it just keeps piling up and, you know, we can, we can ignore it all we want until we can't. Absolutely. Well, speaking of trauma, so getting away from, from, you know, the, the mental ill health for a moment, you were, you know, an EMT for several years and then, um, you know, got into the medic side. When did you start realizing that the way we were being trained in EMS schools, um, and even, you know, the, you know, what you saw firsthand, um, on the calls that there was some room for improvement as far as dealing with losing patients and also telling family members, you know, that their, their significant other had died. Um, in hindsight, I can tell you, I knew immediately. Um, I speak pretty openly in my course that, um, on death communication about, you know, how badly I messed up when I had to break the news of my mom's death to somebody. And, um, it, it went sideways so fast. I mean, it was, it was probably one of the most memorable, unfortunately memorable experiences about her death because there's so much blank tape from those few days, you know, when, when cortisol is peaked, um, it actually causes you to forget. So there's a lot of things. My sister remembers even less than I do. And, um, I just remember that, that event very well and thinking to myself like, okay, it's fine. I'm 18 years old. I've never had a death. I'd never experienced a death before that. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, well, I'll start EMT school and they'll tell me how to, how to do this. You know, that's, that's something we do. Right. And so wrong. <laughs> um, definitely. <laughs> I had nobody in my family that was all my family were teachers and, um, for the most part, all the women in my family were teachers and men did all various different things, but nobody was in the medical field, much less emergency medical field. And so that didn't happen and didn't happen during my training with EMT. And then I get to paramedic school and we had one really rich conversation about it. I loved it. Um, but again, it had us contemplating um, ethics around it and had us contemplating uh, situations, but never how do you like never the act of how to talk about it. And so, and that was only one day. And then I very vividly remember um, an event when I was in my internship and it wasn't my preceptor, but I remember my preceptor telling me, Hey, I don't expect you to be the one to tell the family the news. Cause we had to deliver it over the phone, unfortunately. Um, Cause the, the patient was in a like extended term. It was like a, one of those facilities for dementia patients. And, um, he said, I, I don't expect you to be the one to do this, but I want you to go watch so-and-so cause he's going to do it. And I want you to take notes. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I like walk up behind him and he, to the state probably never knew I was standing behind him. And he totally like dodged the, the whole topic. He just kind of beat around the bush and told the son that, Oh, well, you know, she's, you know, we know your mom's a DNR. So yeah, just, uh, we're going to leave her here and, you know, check on her in the morning or something like that. Like totally chickened out. And I'm, I'm just watching him like my jaw drop. Cause this is a very competent medic. It was a very competent, somebody I respect and I looked up to. And I thought to myself, Oh, we really don't know how to do this. Like that was my aha moment. Like nobody has taught us how to do this. If the person who I think you know, knows what he's doing, you know, the people I'm looking up to during my internship doesn't even know how to relay this, then this is, this is a huge deficiency. And, um, I continued to see that deficiency as a paramedic 
And in fact, when I chose to, so I, I told you about my resistance with school prior to, I um, kicked and screamed through my associates, took me about 10 years to finish. I was a total bitch during my bachelor's because I absolutely hated it. And I just told myself every week, just get through one. I, I took it one week at a time. And um, in my bachelor's was in emergency management. And I decided to shift gears. And I thought, you know, what? I'm going to study mental health. And I didn't want to be a clinical. I want to study clinical um, psychology, which is very, very needed. But I, I, I just had this desire to study mental health. And I saw a program in um, grief and bereavement. And, you know, all things death related as well. And I thought to myself, okay, here's my opportunity to create the curriculum that doesn't exist. And so throughout my master's, I focused on, um, I focused on death related to first responders, whether we're experiencing it and how that affects us and the grief that unfolds, or um, especially how we're understanding what the family's going through and the the opportunities that we're missing by not staying on scene with them and talking to them um, and being there for them, being part of the grieving process. We've always been a part of it. We've just never been aware of that. And so that's how I got to to where we're at today. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I look back on my career and, you know, I can think of all the different ways I fumbled my way through. And, you know, some were probably good. Some, I remember one specific one working the code and the, uh, there were brass on scene, but they kept the family in the same room, like one room over. So I'm there saying, all right, you know, this is a sisterly. We're going to work 20 minutes. If these things don't change, we're going to call it, you know, as you do to, to fellow crew, come to find out the family has been around the corner listening the whole time. Um, which is that bad? Absolutely not, because that's the medical reality. But, you know, then, and then having the, to kind of, uh, overcome that realization that they were there listening to everything that we were doing. Not that there was anything untoward in, in what we did and the code went well. It was just a, you know, morbidly obese gentleman who had no chance of coming back from, you know, the massive heart attack that he had. Um, but yeah, but you know, but I saw that same department before I got there. They ignored the assistedly code protocol and just basically hauled everyone off. And I guarantee you part of that was the lack of courage for owning that position and having that person die on, you know, on their property and, and, you know, addressing the family and not dragging them through a show code where they end up taking up an ER bed, you know, and dragging on their hope, thinking their family member might survive and then giving them a huge uh, ER bill just because you didn't have the courage to, to educate yourself and be the medic that you were paid to be. Yeah, people don't realize how much, and it, and people want to like dismiss, like, oh, you can't really think about money during times like this. Like, trust me, you have no time to not think about money because planning a funeral, as someone who you know had to plan it with my sister, planning a funeral is like planning a wedding in less than a week. Because I mean, you got to get the venue, you got to do the reception, you got to order a cater, you got to invite everybody, you got to figure out what you know mom's gonna wear and what we're gonna bury her in. I mean, there was so much, and it's so freaking expensive i can't imagine having an added transport bill and medical bill on top of the thousands of dollars it takes i mean a headstone cost seven grand uh 18 years ago i can't imagine i don't know if that costs you know what that cost is now but those are things you don't even think about no exactly it's so so what are the what are the things that we do wrong and then 
through your experience, through obviously not only the academic side, but, but the application in, in the real world, what are some of the approaches that you've seen to be effective? Um, when, you know, we're telling someone that they're, like I said, their loved one has died. So, so some of the things, so I'll start with, with what we could be doing better differently. And at the core of this, I want to remind people that the reason why these behaviors, these practices exist and they get perpetuated as this is the way we're supposed to do it is really coming from a place of discomfort. So we, uh, we scoop and run with the child to the hospital because we tell ourselves that we don't want the family, the parents to have to see it. It'll be too traumatic for them. We use the words passed away or, you know, we lost and we use euphemisms over dead died because we tell ourselves that that's the more polite thing to do. Um, when in reality, it's just what's making us more comfortable with the situation. So, for example, with kids, and, and kids are the, they're, pro- they're the, going to be the hardest call we'll ever run, I think, in terms of, um, they, they seem to be the ones that really stick with a lot of people. And one thing I've, I've always, I've always questioned is, you know, especially if you're, if you're working at an agency that utilizes high performance CPR. And so whatever that might look like to your agency, um, at the core of high performance CPR is uninterrupted compressions and, um, uninterrupted care with the intention of getting ROS back. We know from the science, we know from the data that physiologically remaining on scene is beneficial to the patient. And yet we can't quite bridge past this idea that it doesn't also apply to Pete's because it does. And it's just interesting because in there's no judgment for me, Uh, no judgment for me, knowing, knowing the importance of staying on scene, both psychologically and physiologically um, I understand that's going to be the hardest thing for us to do. But that said, um, what I what I like to explain is that is what I like to explain is that separating that parent from the child is just as traumatic as allowing them to watch. And so there was a study that was published, and they interviewed over twelve thousand bereaved parents of children that had died in the um, PICU or ER. And they asked them, you know, would you want to be, you know, most of them did partake in the resuscitation. And what they found was that even though only about, I think it was 82%, 87% wanted to be there for the resuscitation, almost 100% of them wanted the choice. There was all but one out of like 12,000 some. All of them wanted the choice. They wanted to be the ones that decided if they were there with their child or not. And people wonder why. They're like, why wouldn't you want to just push them out of the room? And and, and so long as they're not interrupting, interfering with the with the code itself, with your with your resuscitation efforts, there's no reason they they shouldn't be allowed to be in the room watching um, because while it's going to be traumatic for them to see what's even more traumatic is for them to show up to the hospital, find out that their child has died and live with the fact that they abandoned them in their moment of need. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, I've had both, you know, I've had legitimate ones where we've, you know, scooped and run, um, especially in, in suspected abuse cases where you didn't want the parent, you know, to come with you because it looked like the kid had been, you know, had the shit kicked out of him. So it's not the person you're going to be bringing along in the, in the back with you. But, um, yeah, I've also had, you know, the, the dead infant put in our arms as we walked out, which, Sadly, you know, was was already um, unsavable. No, no, no question about it. So, but the to me, that's just like you said, the the choice. That's that's a very empowering thing. You know, like you know, would you like to be here or would you not? And, I, and I've seen both. And I come from older school where they were never there. Um, you know, like I said, what what kind of irked me about this last one is we were used to the people not being there, and they were there. So I come around the corner, and I was on my back foot for that one. Um, but I've also in my medic clinicals, um, the local hospital RMC here in Ocala, they had shifted to, I don't know if they still do it, but they shifted to the parents or the, the family, whether it's peds or, or adult being there and working a code with the family. And that was, that was new for me. It was strange, but the reality is it doesn't change anything. You know, you're going to do your best. And then when I do get that, when you do step away, when you call it as painful as that is, they have witnessed you do everything that you can. Whereas I've had it where the loved one, the wife of a, a guy I had, you know, he was alive. We closed the ambulance door and by the time we got to the ER, he was dead. He was talking to her, you know. So that disconnection is going to be very hard for that poor woman to process versus, you know, I mean, that wasn't a code specifically, but yeah, that that being there from the moment we arrived through to either, you know, a successful transport with a, with a, with a, a healthy person or working a code in their house, doing everything you can, and then giving that body the dignity then of not dragging it to an ER and ended up, you know, looking like it's on a mortuary slab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there, even though you said, you know, that wasn't necessarily a, um, a code, you're still the most important person for that wife to help process what has just happened to her husband because you were the one that was there. You are the one that can offer her something that the doctor, the nurse, the chaplain, the social worker, that nobody else can if they weren't there. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, because I've, I've, I've got a very strong memory. I've talked about this a lot. I've always been an absolute shitstorm when it comes to cardiac arrest like if you're pre-code I've got a lot of pre-code saves I don't beat myself up about this but I'm the one that has the brain bleed you know the the um, the uh, GI bleed so it's a code but there's just a constant flow of emesis that's coming out the airway you never truly get an airway I've had the you know quadriplegic that you can't even compress their chest because it's like a side panel of a car I mean I just I'm that shit magnet but um, so that's a lot of people dying you know I've never had a code save in 14 years um but uh you know what was the hardest thing for me that that one bleed that i had was in so many of these systems the moment you get it you offload and then all right get your report done get back in service so i'm there tapping away on my computer and literally six eight feet from me is the grieving room next to the ems report area you know and this family that just saw me work their their husband slash son you know, now they're wailing and I'm just there tapping away because I don't have the time to to do anything other than, you know, get back in services. That's what we're supposed to do. So what's your philosophy on um, not only from the family's perspective, but also the, the EMT and medic's perspective on 
removing some of that pressure to get back in service so that these men and women can actually, A, be there for the family longer and follow through that care a little bit more, but also process the absolute shitstorm that they just went through themselves? You know, um, I didn't learn about this practice. On, it's such a silly, simple thing. I didn't learn about this practice until after I exited the field. Um, and I think at the time, I would have been too afraid to do this. But there is nothing wrong with giving your information to the family to contact you later. And I say I would have been afraid. I would have been afraid to do this years ago. Because for some reason, it, my, my aversion, and maybe this is just me, but my aversion to drawing attention to myself, to allowing the family to stay there was always, what if I fuck something up and they see it? What if they accuse me of not saving their family member? You know, it was always back to competency and liability. And in reality, it's the last thing on their mind. They don't remember what you did. They don't remember that you couldn't get a tube. They don't remember that you ripped out the IV. They don't remember that med error. They don't remember the 15 seconds you stayed off the chest instead of the, you know, five to 10. They don't remember that stuff. They remember how you took care of them. And so, you know, what you were doing in that, in that room next to the grieving room, like you're compartmentalizing. You don't have time to deal with them because you're trying to write this report up as accurately as possible because you've got you know calls pending fine if you think it's important enough and here's the thing too let me backtrack a little bit it's not always going to be the paramedic it's not always going to be the company officer this is something that should be taught in all levels of certification and training and in all ranks because it is such a simple basic skill that is not associated with a scope of practice and at the same time is also important to remember that you might not be in the headspace to be there for that family in that day it might have to be your emt and um or you might not be in the headspace to talk to that family but maybe you're the most appropriate one to talk to them so you leave your card and say reach out to me if you need anything because they will, they will, they will have questions that come up later and their questions have nothing to do most of the time. I'm not going to say never. I never say never. Their questions rarely have to do with your clinical competency. They have to do with them filling in blanks that their brain has that needs pacifying. They need to close up those loose ends to help them heal and work through their grief. Yeah, it's it's such a you know a labyrinth, but I mean, it's very simple. And I hate when people say, "Oh, it's it's a complicated issue." Almost like to write off a discussion. It, it's not <laughs> complicated, but there are layers again. So, for example, I've talked about this with with several people. Um, because of an, you know, that inability to save and something that seems to have just been a, a very common denominator in my career, the only saving grace is your training. So like you said, if you know that you were diligent in your training, we can always do better. I'm not saying that I was, you know, the best and absolutely not, not even close, but I took it seriously. You know, I did train. I did, you know, when we did skills, I didn't do them once. You know, I used to do them until the time ran out, you know, just things like that so that I, um, you know, could fall to my level of training. My level of training would be 
at a certain level. But I can see how even with what you're talking about here, if you know you didn't take it seriously and you know you screwed up royally, that's really going to stay with you if you know the parents, you know, or, you know, the family are in there. But if, I mean, you know, IVs do fall out, you know, tubes you do miss, especially on some of these crazy, you know, anatomical men and women that are out there in the world um, and the situations, you know, you're on the side of, a, of the road, you know, in, in almost pitch black trying to trying to figure it out. Um, and that happens. But yeah, I can see how, again, that this is another area where, holding you know a, a department to a high standard in hiring and then maintaining that through their career so that they are as well trained as possible is so important for the mental health element because that what if i couldn't save that person because i know deep down inside i hadn't prepared like i should have that's going to be something that's definitely going to be a, a big burden to bear down the road yeah and you know um Going back to to your initial question, um, I remember a so I had a I had a classmate last year whose husband died while we were in session because we would come once a month um, to just outside of Santa Barbara for school. Rough rough campus, <laughs> it was beautiful, and we would all get together and we come from all different parts of um, of the country, and so she was with us when she got the news that her husband died. It was just tragic because it was absolutely um unexpected and um you know everybody kind of came together and got her home um but the either paramedic or emt who was on the phone with her at the time ended up coming back to visit her a few days later to check on her and in my head i'm like wow like they could do that because you know i'm like what kind of rural area are you living in where that you know happens but in reality it's like there's no rule to say we can't do that it's just not in our practice and i and i asked her about that experience she she actually came up to me when she came back a few months later to school and and said you know that right there was one of the most powerful things in her healing process was to connect face to face with the person that was with her husband last and um, be able to answer those questions that she had. He brought her like a plant, like a lily or something, which I thought was a very nice gesture. And just, you know, like there's this, there's this whole uh, like human element that we learn to dissociate very early in our careers that would really benefit us to tap into on demand and tap into during certain times like these. Now, what's your opinion on crew dynamics as far as, you know, the officer being the one who's slightly detached from the actual medical element and, and being more of a A scene safety and B, you know, being the, the, the family advocate? Because I've worked in, you know, a couple of dynamics. My last, last one and the one before it was mainly the firefighters that were the primary medics, but in Anaheim, which is, I absolutely loved. Usually it was the front seat that were the medics, so the the captain and the engineer. And I always found that a bit weird because to me, I want the captain or lieutenant or whatever rank is you know in that crew to be watching my ass while I'm in some shitty part of town, you know, working the code on a shooting victim. So you know, with with what you've learned over the last you know couple of decades now, what is your observation on you know the role of the officer in uh, let's say a code? 
You know, um, I experienced uh, medic and rank when I was in Orange County as well. And what my the medic and um, captain would take turns with patient care every other shift. And, um, you know, I think it's important to know each other's roles and know how to kind of manage the scene. And, you know, the company officers, one of their biggest roles on these scenes is scene management, is to overlook, is to be able to step back and see any threats that are coming and, you know, kind of mind everybody's back when they don't have the time to really be watching their own. But um, when I worked in Riverside, I found that there were a lot of captains who were EMTs. And for some reason, that became more evident when we started having these conversations about stuff because they'd go, well, I don't understand why my medic's doing that. I don't understand why we're staying out. Like there was, there would be conflict between the paramedic and the company officer because the paramedic wanted to stay and the company officer wanted to go. And the underlying factor here was the lack of integrated training, meaning you would update the paramedic on all the stuff, but you wouldn't update the EMT on all the stuff, not realizing that that company officer ultimately has control over that scene. And technically, it, it's a continuous argument. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Uh, what that paramedic does. So to answer your question, I, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another who's supposed to be in charge as long as there is one person that is standing back, that is overlooking everything, and is acting as that advocate to the family member, that communication to the family member. Um, but there, th- that, that does become a problem when you alienate the EMTs from the training that the paramedics receive. I think there is a, a big, there's something very valuable that comes out of um, bringing those two ranks together, those two licensures together to um, do the same training. Because they're running the calls together anyways. Why wouldn't you train together, right? Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I'm actually of the opinion. I know it's just, you know, some people are going to roll their eyes. But to me, I think we should all be medics just because, you know, when I've done my um, tech level or special operations classes too. You know, I just want to be the best trained firefighter EMS person that I can be. So why would you not become a medic? You know, so there's, there's that one philosophy. And I know there's a lot of anti EMS fire people out there, but, but, you know, it's, it's, I used to be a lifeguard too. All right. So I've, you know, jumped into the lake, pulled the kid out, pull him on the side. And now what? You know what I mean? There's another part to saving a life if you're going to call yourself a lifesaver. But, um, yeah, I, the, the actual working a code when you're in there, it's it is it's like a flow state. I mean, you're absolutely in the zone when you know when your training comes together and you've got a good crew and you're working cohesively. But that absolutely comes at the expense of what's going around. Like for example, that young man that that passed away with the brain bleed. I was told after it was in a um, a uh, a kennel in a resort area, and they were still continuing to check people in. While we were working the code in their foyer, I mean, it's <laughs> disgusting, you know. But I didn't even notice because I was so in the zone. I was, I was, uh, you know, running that code. Um, so again, I was completely aware, of running the code of what was going around me as far as the different people that were, you know, doing IVs on the airway, all that kind of thing. But the grander, the more macro scale, I wasn't. So it doesn't matter if it's a, a medic or an EMT. But yeah, having that assigned person to always be watching rather than get sucked into the code because we all want to help. We all want to be hands-on. But, you know, there's that safety element. But again, just I've heard you talk about in, in the other interview, 
we kind of be the, we need to be the narrator for the family to say, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're trying. You know, so far it's, it's, it's not looking good. This, you know, the flat line on the screen is, is called asystole. And, you know, that's a very hard rhythm to bring them back, but we're going to give them some drugs. We're going to keep working CPR. Um, but there, you know, there might come a point where we're going to have to say, there's nothing more we can do, you know, and just kind of lead them through it. So it's not like Hollywood working a CPR, waiting for them to just jump up and hug everyone. But they actually are kind of led down the sadly a lot more glass half empty reality that is cardiac arrest. Well, yeah, and I mean I think it's it's so important to prepare them for the worst because here's the thing: even if you get pulses back, that is still a traumatic experience. That is still going to be a life altering event that is going to impact everybody in that room, not just the patient. And, you know, by building them up to what you're ultimately, you're preparing them for the worst. And by building them up, you're not letting them fall as hard when you break that news and you ultimately tell them that they're dead. And to be completely honest with you, most of the time, um, most of the time they already know, they know they're in denial and they're saying they were just, you know, talking to me or, you know, this can't happen or whatever things you can remember people saying. Um, ultimately we're the ones that have to do the dirty work and confirm their biggest fear that they're not able to come to terms with themselves. Absolutely. Now just, just to kind of underline and be clear. So what are some of the, the ways we should be telling the family? Obviously, again, we just talked about, you know, taking the opportunity to kind of walk them through it so we're not setting them up for a bigger fall what about you know we've lost them let's say they weren't even there say you know say they were somewhere else or on the end of the phone what are the types of principles that you use as far as us disseminating that information to the loved ones oh that's a really good question because this has come up in training before um it it is important to tell them even if they're on the phone and the reason why I say this, and, and there's always the risk, people always say, well, what if, you know, they get in an accident, you know, driving there or whatever it might be. It's like, you don't have to tell them, you don't necessarily have to tell them they're dead or that, you know, specifically, but you can tell them, this is how we, the condition that we found your husband. It is very serious. We're going to be here. Please drive safely. You know, you can, you can do all those disclaimers, but ultimately if they're dead, the last thing you want to do is lie to them. Um, I spoke with a captain one time whose wife died while he was away and he said that the crew just did not want to tell him. And he's like, I knew she was dead. The second that somebody called me and he goes, I could hear it on their tone of voice. And it just made me angry and not trust them even more because they weren't just straight with me. And that I think is so telling to the importance of that transparency and that trust that you build with the family member that you're communicating with. And so in, in this case, yeah, are you taking a risk by telling them while they're while they're far away? Yes, but they already know. You know, and from my experience, I found out about my mom on the phone. And I remember I was about an hour away when she died, and my cousin was calling my best friend, which was super weird to begin with. And um, she, I remember, and there's bits of it that are choppy, but I remember asking what was wrong. She's like, just get home, just get home. In my head, I already knew what was wrong. Right. I already knew it was wrong. And it just pissed me off even more that nobody would tell me. And then finally she told my friend who talked to tell me. And, you know, we, you know, made our made our, made our trip home for about an hour of a drive, probably faster that day the way she was driving. But um, nonetheless, we got there safely. And at the end of the day, um, I think it's just important to be 
to be as honest and transparent as you feel comfortable being. But, you know, that's always going to be a risk. Whether you tell them the truth or not, the risk of them getting an accident on the way there is is always going to be there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing that's uh, working for four different agencies, you know, seeing things like show codes, which, you know, I think back in the day it was – it came from all the best intentions. People thought that was the best thing. But now – basically since i got to the the east coast again orange county had a very very good uh um medical director and, and it was very much like you know we're not bringing their people to the hospital and here's why and here's just like you said there is no better place to work a code with a full drug box and competent medics and emts than immediately where you found them if you've got to drag them out from the bed or whatever and get them on a hard surface where you can work absolutely but after that yeah, the the compressions in the elevator just aren't going to be working. The compressions on the stair chair, you know, it's it's a facade. It's Hollywood. So, um, you know, so then going to the last apartment where they were still back on that, just get them off. No one dies on this property kind of philosophy. Um, it was it was it was uphill battle. And I basically, you know, I even had a battalion chief grab me by my radio strap. Who to this day I should have just sparked him in the face, but I would end up losing my job. But, um. <laughs> You know, telling me you will transport this patient. This was, you know, someone who was even starting to get, um, lividity. You know, the, the, mm. the, the lifeguards in this property had started the code. It was full asystole, pale, you know, pale as a sheet. Um, you know, I, I, I were starting to bulge a little bit. And so by the time I got to the ER, first thing I said to the doc was like, I know <laughs> this is a, <laughs> I brought you a, you know, I'm not, I'm not being medically unprofessional but this should have been called on scene and he doppled the heart you got a doppler that did the heart and within two minutes you know he was called and now that family has the er bill as well you know so um yeah what what have you seen as far as show codes and just kind of illustrate um you know as obviously within protocol like is 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 a show code doing more or less harm to to the family and you know the the ripple effect of that um, so there's always gonna be exceptions to the rule, obviously. And, you know, one of the exceptions is if there's a scene safety issue, uh, yeah, you're out of there, right? You're transporting and you can call the hospital and let them know, uh, you know, this patient is not um, showing any signs of, um, you have to continue your, at least your BLS procedure while you're tra- transporting in most places. Um, but you can let them know like, Hey, this patient, um, has fetal signs. They're not responding. Um, but due to the circumstances we had to get out there and that, Hopefully, if you have that kind of relationship with your receiving facility, communicates to them to not activate a code, like not activate a team to respond to a code. And instead, they just know we're transporting a patient there to be pronounced there. And sorry about that. We just had to do it. So that's one thing. Um, the other is I personally think it always is more harmful, but it's not always avoidable. There's sometimes where you just have to get yourself out of there. Um, one call that I remember very vividly as an EMT, I remember it was, um, an 18 year old kid got hit on his motorcycle. He was on one of the street bikes. He got hit by a semi truck and it was on mother's day. And he, I, I went to ventilate him and every time I ventilated him, blood shot out of his ears. And the, I mean, he was, he was toast, right? And this was with a helmet on that was still the result. And so the medic, the captain, who's also a medic, is like, dude, he's a Sicily, like, let's call it. And the medic was like, oh, everybody's, you know, we've got people across the street with their phones. And I mean, this was back before iPhones. They had all those little flip phones that probably didn't even, 
you know, had a super grainy video, but for that reason, he wanted to transport and we get to the hospital and he made a very ignorant comment afterwards and said something along the lines of like, well, at least the nursing students get some practice in a day or something. Cause there was a bunch of nursing interns doing their clinical rotations in that ER. And I was so livid at that because I thought to myself, you are clearly not someone who's ever had to bury anybody. You know, this 18 year old has no life and probably has no life insurance. And now his mom, you know, she's around and in the picture, we never had any contact with the parents. Now he's bury her kid who died on mother's day and add that bill you know, it's just insult to injury. It was just so disgusting to me, but it came from a place of ignorance. It came from a place of not knowing better because this wasn't a incompetent person. This wasn't somebody who I, I think he said it to make himself feel better in the moment where he probably was very uncomfortable with the situation we were dealt with on scene. Yeah. We use the word ignorance. And what about arrogance too? Because I think that's an, another issue that we see, you know, I, I, Again, I don't know where it comes from, but I've I've met the world's greatest paramedics in several departments, <laughs> and they've told me every single day, you know, and that's a very, very dangerous self-reflection when it comes to being a caretaker for people who, you know, are, are giving you their consent because they're unconscious. Yeah, I think that comes from a um, this false dichotomy that we have to be that there is no failure that the only way to be successful is and the only way to be good and competent is to never fail on when in fact we learn the most from our failures. And if, you know, I tell people all the time, I said, if, if you're not failing and tell my students, if you're not failing, it tells me you're not trying hard enough. You're, you're seriously not, you're not learning. Um, and it's, uh, I think that's where a lot of the arrogance is, you know, stems from. Is this uh, fear? It's fear. It's fear of being perceived as anything less than. And so, I mean, as far as some other things go, you know, like let's take kids for example. Let's say you don't feel confident, comfortable um, pronouncing that child on scene, and, and I never recommend um, taking family with on on working calls like that, whether it's an arrest or anything else, you know, I, my philosophy always was with, um, when I worked for private ambulance was my family members would always come in the back of the ambulance with me. And people kind of looked at me a little sideways when I'd say that, but I always was under the impression that if they were not stable enough, they were not, um, safe enough to have in the back with me, then they weren't safe enough to be in the front with my EMT. And so that definitely, usually there was one or two occasions where a family member went in the front seat, but um, when it came to a working arrest, but for the most part, um, there is, even if you, the, the point I'm getting at is even if you do ultimately transport that patient to the hospital, stay on scene for your 20 minutes, you know, stay on scene for your 20 minutes, let the family be a part of it, let them know what to expect. And that way that they're not blindsided once they get to the hospital, there is still value in letting them be involved. And involved is a very loose term, but involved simply means keeping them in the know. It doesn't mean handing them an IV bag and having them hold it up for you, because I've seen that too, unfortunately. Um, 
but literally just keeping them in the loop with what's going on, answering all their questions. Um, you asked me what's, what's the best practice for breaking the news to them. And I'd say immediately. So you immediately start, I should say, not immediately tell them, but let's say you're working on now, let me backtrack a little bit before I get ahead of myself. If they are DOA, tell them immediately, like, don't hesitate. Don't, um, dance around it. If they are, you know, all the signs leading up to it and you're not going to work them, you tell them they're dead. And you have to use the words dead and died because in a heightened state of, of um, stress, they don't process the gray. They don't process they passed away. They don't process those euphemisms. They process black and white and dead is very, very clear and they will appreciate clear. People will get angry and actually lose trust in you if they have to, if they have to like almost dig for the truth out of you when they know you have it, they know, you know, the answer. And, um, you want to tell them immediately. So let's say you're working on scene. You want to tell them, Hey, this is what we've got. This is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to be here for about 20 or 30 minutes. So people always ask, well, what do I do if the family's like wondering why we haven't left yet when there's an ambulance outside? We'll tell them before they even have to ask, tell them ahead of time. We have all the tools. We have all the medications. We have all the capabilities that the ER does, but we have a it's better right now because we're able to give it to the, your family member in real time. We're able to do this for them right now. And every time we move them, we run the risk of, of losing, you know, the, the progress we're making. And it, you know, this is the best opportunity or the best circumstances for survival. And then, you know, 10 minutes in 15 minutes in, you know, whenever you start seeing them responding or not, you know, 10 minutes in, they're still in a systole. It was an unwitnessed arrest. The internal CO2 is low. You can start telling them, Hey, you know, we still have no heart beat. We're still breathing for them. We tried this, this, that, that didn't work. If we're going to do this, this, and this, and if this doesn't work, then we're going to, you know, we're going to have to stop. And you can, you can kind of dance around the word dead and died up until the point that you're going to pronounce them. And the reason why is because at the point that you say dead and died and you kind of give them that final blow you want to build them up to it but the point that you give it to them and tell them the bad news they're not going to hear anything you say after that okay so everything you want to tell them leading up to it you can even invite them um and this is something i know um, dr antebi is a, a fan of love dr antebi and his practice and what he's doing in his hospitals and with his fire departments invite them to come hold their hand Invite them to say their goodbyes because to us, clinically, that patient's dead. That patient was dead before we got there. To the family member, they're not dead until we say they're dead. And that's a very important distinction to make. So if, you know, the situation allows for it and there's no foul play involved and you've got a, a compliant, you're not going to have a calm family member, okay? So them screaming and crying and praying and doing all the things around you that make you uncomfortable does not count as ineligible to be in that room. More challenging, yes. But inviting them over to say their goodbyes, to say whatever it is they need to say, and then say, you know, we're, we're, we're going to stop after this and then tell them that they're dead or, you know, I'm sorry, your husband has died. That's it. And that's, um, you know, there's, there's, more, there's more to it than that. There's multiple different factors to keep in, keep in mind. But, um, you know, if I was to summarize it, I'd say, it, I'd say it's, it's start talking to them immediately, um, answer all their questions along the way build them up to it, invite them to say goodbye and um, get, give them a road and let them know where you're going. Where are you going with this? You know, what are you doing? Keep them, keep them involved, keep them informed. 
Love that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's so refreshing to hear it just laid out. And it's funny, you said Dr. Antevi, he was the one who kind of highlighted in our conversation um, what I was getting to earlier, which is, you know, we rush our medics and EMTs right back into service. Well, they, the family, you know, in this particular incident, it was the, the hospital personnel that had told this family. So they had already, you know, they were literally just grieving on their own there. But, you know, we we just lost that guy too, you know? And, and so having that time to process a call, do we constantly have to just be rushing our people back, you know, run a call, run a call, run a call, run a call to where, as we mentioned earlier, they can't process at night. Well, they can't even process in the day because, you know, five minutes after you just gave that, that PD code off to the, the ER staff, you're back in service running another call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something that goes on recognize as well as that we sometimes and not all the time you know I, I think it really is relative so um i have a friend that ran two pediatric cardiac arrests in one day which was an absolute i mean just not not common at all for the area that he worked in we were running maybe two a month across like a hundred fire stations. So the fact that he ran two in one day was just when he told me that I was like, you realize how remarkable that is? Like, that's not normal. And he was like, really? And the first one was more of a um, special needs. Uh, I want to say the patient, I don't know what happened to the patient when they were younger, but I want to say they were about nine years old and on vents and dependent and the family was very at peace with it. They understood that this was a risk that it was coming. And so working up this patient and I think, think pronouncing on scene if I remember correctly it's been a while um he was able to process that with no problem because it didn't compromise his moral philosophies you know what he believed was okay and not okay and then he runs a drowning and it's you know total freak accident it's a three-year-old I want to say um there was a party going on and it was in the winter when it happened but kids snuck out the back ended up in the pool and that one got to him because it reminded him of his child. And so that one stuck with him for a while. And so not we're not going to have this response to all these calls, but one thing I've you know anecdotally observed is when there is an association, a personal association to that patient, whatever that might be, it might just be that you talk to them before they died because they were, you know, times four before they went into arrest. It might be that they looked like your child. It might be that they, for me, um, anytime I ran calls on people that were my age, it was, it was a weird, I don't know. It just, it bothered me a little more than the elderly or children. I don't have children. And so it didn't bother me the same way. So there, there's a personal association with it, but we also as first responders and, you know, Doctors, nurses, all all medical professionals are not immune to this. Also experience grief. And one thing I told myself when I grieved the loss of a, we had a four-year-old kid that died. Um, I remember being very upset about it and telling myself, like, why am I crying? Like, just totally scolding myself in the, in the bay ambulance bay like this is stupid like this isn't my kid like I don't have kids like I I have no reason to be crying you know this isn't my emergency and just feeling really stupid and ashamed of it and in hindsight I was disenfranchising myself 
from experience that grief. I was, I was telling myself I wasn't allowed to feel that way, which actually just made the grief last longer. And um, I remember sharing that definition, that brief definition with Ben Vernon, who I think you've also interviewed. Yes. And he, he heard that at a conference I was, that we were both speaking at. And it was like, I could see him in the middle of the crowd before we even met. He had just a light bulb pop off in his head. He was like, yes, that is what I had. I totally grieved the loss of my patience and I didn't know what it was. And there was something so powerful in naming something and being able to name a feeling before you're able to even process what that feeling is. So... Yeah, no, very, very powerful. And, and I can, you know, relate to a few things, you know, that you said, like the gentleman that lost two in a, in a call, excuse me, two in a shift. I had, and this, this was, this is sad for me in a different way. I had a, I think he was five. Um, but he was a special needs boy, but he actually was a shaken baby victim. So that poor child has sat in a, you know, in a special needs hospital for his entire life staring at a ceiling until he finally passed away. And that was a, you know, a conflicting feeling. It was almost a relief that he was free from that broken body of his, but there was anger to whoever put him there in the first place. And I had a week, you know, almost all my, my PD case, that was a separate one, but the other three that I had, infant codes, well, one was a pre-code trauma. They were all abuse within a week, three babies abused, two were dead, one were, you know, I don't know if it survived the injuries or not. You know, so then again, that's not just losing a child, it's the circumstances behind the child. So there are so many layers again to yes. to what we deal with and what we have to process, you know, and then how is that organization that you return to? Is it a, is a healthy, cohesive fire department or do you come back from a PD code and then get written up because you're fucking badges sideways or you know what i mean so so there's that that element too so yeah so many levels that it's so refreshing to to talk to people like yourself who you know who can just enable us to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and identify some of these things that that we go through you know and give us the tools to be better you know at dealing with it um i want to shift to one more topic before we kind of start closing out um you mentioned that you study depth psychology and we were laughing because i thought it was a, a typo <laughs> um but it's it's interesting the more i've kind of immersed myself in in psychology by interviewing great people um the more i realize that you know shopping you know materialism you know porn gambling infidelity um you know, all these things are other areas that are parallel to alcoholism, you know, um, narcotic addiction, all these things that we attribute more obviously with, with mental ill health. And you were kind of detailing that depth psychology really kind of takes the, the next layer beneath that. So I'd just love to hear what you've learned about depth psychology and, you know, how anything can, can, be a, a symptom of or, or a gap filler for some mental trauma that people haven't dealt with? Sure. Yeah, I um deaf psychology and it's funny, a couple of people have, you know, told me, hey, you have a typo on your, you know, email or your website. It's supposed to say death psychology, right? I'm like, no, it's actually supposed to say death psychology, <laughs> but it's totally normal that you think that. You no, know? Alex, Why it's supposed to be death psychology. I know. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's everything you don't see, you know, like everything we see in other people and even ourselves, like our, um, our vices, our addictions, or our bad habits are all just 
symptoms of a core pathology or something going on beneath the surface. So earlier we were talking about all these different um, things like, you know, um, porn addiction, narcotic addiction, um, alcohol addiction, food addiction, fitness addiction, like you name it, like you could look at all these different things and think that they're, you know, we have a tendency to really fragment and not integrate within um, healthcare system and actually think that they're all unrelated when in fact there is a relation to them all. There's something beneath the surface that um, that might be driving all of these different symptoms that we see. And so um, depth psychology really relies on the teachings of Carl Jung, uh, Sigmund Freud. Uh, there's um, Joseph Campbell. And so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like, what's the word? Like there's a lot of metaphor and imagery involved because that's actually how our brain processes information. That's why it's so challenging for most of us to sit there and read a book, um, page by page, word by word. We don't actually gain anything without an analogy to, um, kind of tie in what we're trying to, to apply. So there's, there's a lot of, um, I, I find it to be a very, um, for lack of a better word, a very magical process, a very, very, um, just very interesting way to learn about psychology and to explore what is ultimately brewing beneath the surface. So, um, for example, I think it's very convenient to reduce our issue with suicide in first responders to the trauma they see on a call but depth psychology will ask what trauma did you come into this field already carrying from your childhood well exactly that's that's what we discussed at the beginning and i think that's just it there are so many layers was was my divorce contributing to my mental ill health at that time? Absolutely. I never found myself in an extremely dark place, but I mean, shit, I was, you know, a, a fraction mentally of the person that I am again today, happily married and away from that now. But yeah, I mean, every one of these, these elements contributes, but especially I think it's just so important for us to look. You look at the obesity epidemic in, in the US at the moment, you know, the fact that that's put down to the food choices, like, you know, what's in your food. And absolutely that's a case. But, you know, obviously there, there is a, an absolute yearning to stimulate happiness through food, through sugar, through, you know, fat, through all these things, which if you, again, you're talking about observational data. Well, if you observe that 70% of the US is, you know, over, excuse me, obese or overweight, what does that tell you about the mental health of the country right now? I think it's a great observational chart for what we're seeing at the moment. Absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I know you have um, your organization, Emergency Resilience. So tell me about that and then where people can actually reach out if they want to you know, bring you to their department. Uh, yeah, so Emergency Resilience was was founded really as an opportunity to create material and courses that weren't being covered. Um, I kind of got frustrated with, you know, working through red tape and, and dealing with, um, you know, going from an organizational level and trying to, to incorporate these teachings um, 
that way it just wasn't working. There's either no time for it, there's no budget for it or whatever it might be. And I, I just thought to myself, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to develop my own company and develop my own courses and see where it goes from here. And so my intent is, um, you know, to create curriculum. I mean, there is no curriculum on death communication and, um, there are studies that have been done. Um, there's three specifically that evaluated the amount of death education in paramedic and EMT institutions. And most of them cover death education, but it's limited to liability, legalities, Pulse, DNR, all that stuff. It doesn't ever talk about how to communicate with the family and how to work through their grief. And so it's developing the curriculum that doesn't exist. So that's what I ultimately um, am focused on doing. Um, I find myself to be, um, I'm a behavioral health advocate. And what that just simply means is I'm going to share my experience. I'm going to share what I know and um, see where it meets you, see what see what it is that you need from it. And you can take what you need and leave what you don't and save some for later in case somebody you know needs needs some help later. And I think it's important to have these conversations that, um, you know, we're just not making time for. My, my goal is to get more of this stuff into our standardized training curriculum because it, it's missing. It's absolutely missing. And the, the longer we continue to ignore it, the bigger the problem is going to get. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just, just, just to interject for a second, because in medic school, that's what I remember. DNR, it's yellow. It's going to be probably on mm-hmm. the fridge with a magnet. <laughs> that's what every person told me. And it's an interesting, yeah. But it's an interesting <laughs> side note because it, it, we're actually developing a wellness um, uh, chapter or, or part of the the minimum standards fire academy here. So we're going to be adding, you know, fitness, nutrition, sleep you know, some of these things and there's a mental health element they added too. And that's fantastic. But I just, I flashed. It's like, well, that's all well and good. But say you've got, you know, this this chapter on death, where it all, it all depends on who's teaching it. If you're up there teaching it, you're going to teach it very differently than, let's say, you know, a guy who's who really hasn't, uh, you know, mastered that skill himself yet. So he'll be like, oh, yeah, he just, you know, he just, you just tell them, tell them they passed on. Don't, don't, don't tell them straight. No, no, no. Don't use the dead word. You tell them, you know what I mean? So, so even training the trainer, like we have to get our men and women the same way as if, you know, uh, if a morbidly obese firefighter is talking about the fitness and nutrition part, is that the right person to be teaching that chapter? Probably not, you know? So yeah, I mean, there's absolutely a need and I can testify through the training I've had that, you know, I mean, I learn every day and that's how we all should be, but yeah, you have to consider who's teaching that course too. Sure. Delivery matters. And that's why I formulated this, this, the first course I created. Um, I, I, I definitely wanted to do it right because I knew that this was an opportunity um, in an online format to get it out to more people that just need it and more organizations and, and institutions that are lacking this part of their curriculum and, and doing so in a really concise manner. Like it's something that I could, I could create a 16 week death education course where you cover all these different topics but um you know we're very efficient individuals we have very little time and so a little quick two-hour course on you know down and dirty like how to get it done and why it's important and what's the concepts behind it and the meaning the reason behind it um i think is what i aimed to create and there's there's gonna be more where that came from i mean um, death education is just part of what I cover. I think occupational resilience is something that is, um, you know, the word resilience has gotten thrown around a lot since COVID and, um, understandably so, 
But I think when it comes down to it, the at the the secret to occupational resilience is is proactive measures. It's working on yourself. It's the self work. It's the dirty stuff. It's the stuff we don't want to do. That will ultimately set us up to bounce back. Not easier, not quicker, just bounce back when life knocks us down. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And it's this, you know, no better metaphor than physically. You know, if you're doing your mobility work and you're getting your sleep and you're exercising and, you know, then you're going to be more resilient on the fire ground. And, and why would that be any different mentally? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so to find me, um, to answer, finish answering your question, I apologize. Uh, emergencyresilience.com is the website. Um, the course that I just created should be available. I don't know when this will um, reach your audience, but it should be available soon. It's being currently beta tested right now. Um, and I'm on um, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That's the one. So uh, the Facebook page is kind of a little slow to be creative, but Instagram also at Emergency Resilience, I can be reached there. Beautiful. Well, Facebook's a dying, dying platform anyway, so I wouldn't <laughs> put too much effort into that. I have like next to no response to that. Um, all right. Well, then transitions and closing questions. Just to preface this, like this has been an incredible conversation. I, I definitely see a part two if you're up for it, because I feel like we only scratch the surface on all the things that you do. Um, I, but the fir- I absolutely am. And to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before I forget, I just want to um, really thank, actually, it was my student that reached out to you, Joseph Garcia, who reached out to you. He's a fan of your work. He's, you know, obviously very intrigued by the work that I'm doing. And he's the one that actually set up this meeting. So you know, huge thank you to him. And yes, absolutely up for a part two, uh, should that become available in the future. Beautiful. Yeah. And I want to say thank you to him as well. I, I remember he reached out initially and it's funny, like there's some people that, you know, they recommend, I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard about that person. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll reach out. And then there's others like yourself where I hadn't heard your name before. And I'm, I'm amazed that I hadn't. Even Tanya Glenn, I don't know if you know who that is, but she's, you know, huge in mental health and the fire service. And it was probably solid two years of doing this before i'd even heard her name before so so uh i'm so glad he did and i love that now like someone said to me a while ago aren't you afraid of running out of people to interview i'm like no there's not enough days in the bloody week there's so many incredible people out there so thank you for uh connecting us um all right well in the first of the closing questions is there a book that you love to recommend it can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different you know I have a lot of books that I like. I think considering the, the the climate, the political, social, everything climate that's going on right now, um, anything by Brene Brown would probably be recommended. She is a speaker, licensed social worker, and more importantly, she talks about belonging and she talks about um, shame. And she talks, she talks about some things that are really hard for other people to, to discuss. And I think more importantly, she, um, she calls bullshit on this idea that you have to fit into one category or another, that you can't be both, um, that you can't be both and that you do not have to be forced into these, uh, false dichotomies, these false, uh, categories that other people society is creating for you and I, I find that to be a very valuable uh valuable lesson to re- be reminded of i actually revisited her book braving the wilderness was the one that comes to mind 
And you'll find that a lot of what she discusses, because she wrote this in just after the 2016 election. She wrote this after just after the she wrote this just after the 2016 election uh, applies directly to what we're dealing with right now in 2020. So highly recommend that one. Yeah, I've reached out to her once, but it's about a year ago now. And, you know, obviously she, you know, like a lot of these people that are very well known and probably get a lot of offers, they, they do the, the biggest podcast because that's the one that gives them the most bang for their buck. But this has grown exponentially. So I need heard- to... No, no, and I, and I will. It's not if, it's, you know, it's when, but um, I would love to. I mean, that her name gets mentioned all the time. I think we'd have a great conversation. I think it would be interesting from her seeing it from the kind of first responder military, you know, medical angle, because I'm not sure she's exposed to that too much so far. Yeah, I want to say she grew up in a military home, but um, and she has some family members that are officers. So, you know, as someone who's, uh, you know, very in tune with the, with what's going on in the world today, she's she's a good person to kind of consider. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right. Well, then um, what about a film and or a documentary that you love? Oh, okay. Um, any film or any, just no, anything. something applied? Anything at all. About. So I'm not a huge movie buff. I, I just, I can't stand movies that have been remaked. Um, you know, who have like seven or eight sequels, but, or have been remade, you know, since the, their originals. Um, one of my favorite movies though is up in the air is up in the air by, um, George Clooney. That's a really fun one. I really appreciate that movie. And I love that. It's never been, I feel like it's never going to get touched. No one's going to try and <laughs> remake that movie. So I, I love that it will maintain its integrity, if you will. Um, but one of my favorite movies, honestly, that really taps into, there's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot of depth psychological themes to it, is the cartoon, the Pixar movie, Inside Out. I don't know. Have you ever watched that? I have. And you know, it's funny. You're not the first person to recommend that either. As uh, you know, I think that was a psychologist as well. It's it's just such a well orchestrated film as far as I mean it's super entertaining like if you're just wanting to watch something um, you know at that level but it's also if you're really paying attention there's so many themes that come up with the unconscious and the conscious and REM sleep and processing and and really you know if you're familiar with the characters and I mean I think the first time I watched it I hated sadness she just bugged me I was like <laughs> oh what is wrong with this chick like get her out of here. And in the last uh, couple times that I rewatched, I realized, wow, like sadness and joy are the same thing. They are one; they are two sides of the same coin, and they are um, they are not opposite ends. They are not polar opposites. And to have sadness is not an absence of joy in the opposite way around. And I think the biggest takeaway, I think the biggest lesson that movie was trying to convey was that being sad is is okay it's not something that you know we we tend to want to kind of fix everything you know joy kept trying to want to fix everything fix everything fix everything in that movie and and sadness really um has a purpose in all of our lives so i really really appreciated those um and then as far as documentary goes uh the one that came up i love documentaries but the one that has left me with the most impactful um message was a documentary is a pbs documentary you can google it it's called the suicide tourist and it talks about 
um, the Death with Dignity Act, the basically like the the um, people who are terminally ill and choose medically assisted death as their route. And this was obviously done well before. I mean, we, we have about five or six states now that recognize that act and allow um, some room for patients to request it. But this was back when people would have to travel to Norway or other parts of the world in order to utilize that option. And it was for someone who grew up in a very conservative home and remembers learning about Dr. Death, Dr. Kevorkian and all that stuff like that. It was a very powerful eye opener to that side of things. Beautiful. I never heard that documentary you mentioned. I'm going to have to watch that because I, I think we talked before. Dr. BJ Miller has been on a couple of times now, who's the um, palliative care physician. Um, some great conversations with him about that too. And I think that's another thing. Like, why, <laughs> why would you not? We euthanize our dogs. Why would you not allow a patient to decide, you know, when, when they, um, died to not you know beat around the bush with that word again um you know but, but we we sometimes subject ourselves to the most horrific end this you know i i watched my grandfather die he got um riddled with cancer and looking back you know if he'd had the option in the uk to maybe you know make that choice a few weeks earlier he wouldn't have been in that agonizing pain that he was at the very end yeah and it's um the the most profound part and it was it was interesting i was in a I was in a class um, back in, I think, 2011, 2012, and I was assigned euthanasia. Or no, I'm sorry. I was assigned a social dilemma of some sort revolving around death and how, how appropriate that I was given that as my topic or my subject to research. And I didn't know what to do. Oh, I was like, what do I do with this? And I, I came across this um, after a couple of people gave me ideas and I came across this thing. I thought, oh, this is simple. This is easy. Like it's wrong. Like you're not supposed to do it. You know, I'm already an EMT at this point. I was already a paramedic actually at this point. I thought this isn't something you're allowed to do. This would be highly unethical. And this, this uh, documentary just completely shifted my perspective. And it was something that the man said where he said that um, people's arguments against the Death with Dignity Act. That's what it's typically referred to as now. Um, but people's arguments with that is that you're playing God. But he's sitting there, you know, having been diagnosed with a very progressive form of Lou Gehrig's disease, and he's got this um, almost look like a BiPAP machine over his nose. He goes, but aren't we playing God by keeping this machine on my face because my diaphragm isn't working anymore? He goes, how is that not playing God? And not letting me die is also playing God, but it would, you know, this alternative at least lets me die peacefully. Yeah. So yeah, and if you believe that, God gave you that disease in the first place. You know what I mean? So you you can you know there's, reverse engineer it however you want. Yeah, you could. There's there's a lot to unpack there, and I I've taken a very special interest in um, that movement, especially because even though it is legal in the state of California. Um, but there's a lot of facilities. There's a lot of, um, groups, medical groups that forbid their physicians from allowing it with their patients. So it's very unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, sounds like Florida. Our state has opened up with COVID, but then we got all the cities and counties that are like, no, you still need to wear masks. <laughs> all right. Okay. That's a whole, a whole different kind of subject. Anyway, um, so next question. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest? 
to speak to the first responders, military, medical community, and beyond? Um, you know, you have interviewed just about every person in my social network that I would have uh, recommended Excellent. to you. <laughs> so that's pro- okay. So that's a good thing. Uh, you know, and I love that you reached out to Brené Brown. I think that's uh, that's a great thing. You know, uh, have you heard of Amy Cootie? I have not. Okay, good. We'll start there. I don't know her personally. I'm a big fan of her work. She um, has one of the top five TED Talks um, in history called um, "How Your How Your po- Something About How Your Posture Can Change Your Life." But if you look up TED Talks, Amy Cudi, C U D Y, her TED Talks will pop up. And I, I routinely recommend this TED Talks to a student at least once a semester, maybe more than that. And what it basically does, she's this, um, she wrote a book called, Pre- uh, I think it's Presence is the name of the book. And she wrote a, a, a book based on her research. And she wrote it after the this TED Talks, where she talks about how your posture can actually change the chemistry of your body. So, you know, there's, if you look around the room and you see people making themselves small, they're actually reinforcing more cortisol to be pumped into their bloodstreams. And the people that are making themselves big are actually minimizing the cortisol and increasing the testosterone, which increases their confidence and their ability to succeed in their endeavors. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's basically this idea that, you know, those chemicals don't make you small, you making yourself small, actually make those chemicals. And so there's really good, there's really cool um, physiology in there and psychology. And I just respect a lot of the work that she's done. So let's see. Beautiful. I guess I would recommend her. Excellent. You know, and I remember seeing that title, I think, you know, because when I've gone to TED before, they always scroll down on different ones. Um, and I was intrigued, but I don't know why I didn't hit play. But uh, yeah, I will go back and watch that and, and definitely see if I can get her on then. Thank you so much. All You're right. Welcome. Then the last question before we reinforce where everyone can find you and your work. What do you do to decompress? <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because, um, you know, I've, I – when I'm not working on my work, like, you know, my job that I have to do, I am writing or I'm creating or I'm working on, I have a really bad habit of brainstorming for far too long before executing and pushing something out there. So, um, I think I just, you know, I love to eat. I love to eat with my friends. I love to find a good restaurant to go to or have a, you know, my girlfriends and I love having, um, wine and charcuterie nights where we put those, you know, all the mates and cheeses on the board, olives and all that. So I would say, um, good company shared over food is really the best way that I get to decompress. Love it. Absolutely. All right. Well then for everyone listening, just one more time, if you want to go over where they can find emergency resilience and where you are online. So emergency resilience.com and the best place to find me is Instagram, but I am also on Twitter emergency resilience as well. Beautiful. Well, Alex, I want to say thank you that we're here two hours i apologize for going over again <laughs> it seems to be no, a lot recently but yeah i mean this is such an interesting conversation I know we didn't even touch on you know some of the other areas that you talk about a lot um but yeah the, from you know kind of leading us through life in and out of lebanon to you know the mental health stuff and you know uh, death dec- excuse me death declaration and all these other areas it's been a, an amazing conversation so thank you for being so generous today 
Oh, I appreciate the invite. And um, anytime, I, I love the work that you're doing. So thank you for doing it.